If you follow the news closely, there is no denying that today, when we look at this geopolitical change around the world, so many surprises. And of course, today, in addition to the war in Ukraine and also the war in Israel, everyone is asking the same question. What about the fate for the United States of America? And given the fact today, when we look at this political change, America today is standing at the crossroads. In addition to those domestic concerns among the voters, the foreign policy surely topped the agenda. Now, if you remember that back in the days, we always say it's much easier that when we discuss the foreign policy on paper and rather than discussing them in person. Well, again, we're in the year of 2024. That's not really the case because given the condition, the foreign policies are just getting more and more interesting and also more and more complicated. Again, how should we understand the progress the nation has made? And meanwhile, how should we understand some of the policies and will affect not just America, but also the entire international community? Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite our distinguished speaker, who's the Dr. Peter Fever. Dr. Fever is a professor of political science and the public policy at Duke University. He's director of the Duke Program in American Grand Strategy and co-pi of America in the World Consortium. And Dr. Fever is the author of this amazing book called Thanks for Your Service, The Causes and the Consequences of Public Conf Confidence in the Military. Well, Dr. Fever, and welcome to The Missing Piece. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, Dr. Fever, I want to get started. When we look at the American foreign policy, of course, going back to uh, another amazing book that you were the co-editor, which is called Handoff, the Foreign Policy, George W. Bush Passed to Barack Obama. Now, I want to read a statement in this book. I want to get your reaction on this or maybe your further explanation. And I quote, a new president can set administration's tone and priorities, but he or she cannot control the challenges and the forces that may eventually define their presidency. Dr. Fever, I want to ask that when we look at the foreign policy, well, when we look at the uh, uh, political agenda, particularly for uh, President Bush and also for President Obama, how should we understand the characteristics of the two amazing presidents. I mean, again, during their presidency, they all dealt with different uh, foreign policies. Some were urgent and some were challenging. But looking back today, how should we understand the administration's tones and priorities under the two presidents? What are your thoughts? Well, the first thing that needs to be emphasized, and, and this is really at the heart of the exercise that then became the book, mm. this is the fact that the, they were handing over power in the middle of a war. Mm. The global war on terror was going on, but then there were hot wars in both Afghanistan and Iraq. The outcome of, of both of those wars was still in the balance. And it had been many, many years since the U.S. had handed over power, a presidency had handed over power in a wartime situation like that. You have to go back to 68, 69, to, from Johnson to Nixon to find a similar moment. And of course, the world had changed dramatically uh, in the years since then. So President 
Bush was adamant that he handed over to his successor, whoever it would be, mm. all of the tools and all of the situational awareness that his successor would need to make choices starting on day one, starting at minute one. Mm. Uh, there was a real fear uh, because of the concerns about terrorism that a terrorist a group or some other adversary would seek to attack on the inauguration day itself and maximize confusion uh, in the handoff from one administration to another. And so Bush said, let us uh, do a better job than had been done under previous transitions in terms of preparing for that transition and preparing our eventual successor. And he directed the NSC staff under President Bush, I'm sorry, under National Security Advisor Steve Hadley, to build out transition briefing papers that would explain and equip the new team, whichever team was going to win, uh, with the information they needed. And the, when this effort started, it was not foregone conclusion that it would be the Democrat. Uh, it could have, it might have been the Republican, at least at the time they were started, that that was a possibility. So this was not a partisan exercise. This was not a cover our backside and try to make us look good exercise. This was how do we make sure that the, the country is not vulnerable during the transition? One more point about this needs to be made particularly for audiences that are not familiar with the American system. Mm. The American system does something very unusual. When the presidency changes hands, it's as if the government performs a lobotomy on itself. <laughs> Thousands of political appointees leave at the same time. Mm. And because of the Presidential Records Act, all of the principles of the administration get, soak, uh, get collected and put uh, into the presidential library system. So they're not available to the incoming team. Mm. Uh, we now know a lot more about the Presidential Records Act because of the investigations of of the Trump administration, the Biden administration, and the handling of it. But, but the way it's supposed to work is the safes get emptied of documents. Mm. So the incoming team comes straight from the inauguration ceremony and they open the safes and there's nothing there. Mm. Uh, and it takes a while for the new team to get their uh, bearings. That's how it used to be. And uh, President Bush, Steve Hadley says, we can't afford to do that in our, in the world as dangerous as it was in 2008, 2009. And that's the, those briefing books. That's what the book that you re reference handoff is built around is those original highly classified documents that were prepared for the successor who turned out to be President Obama mm. and his team. Dr. Fever, again, going back to uh, this book, of course, that today there were and there are many critical and important moments for us to remember that, again, during the presidency for uh, President Bush and also President Obama. But one of the important concepts that we're still talking about today, it's called the international order. I mean, again, this is rather crucial and significant, especially today, how we are seeing this chaos and we're seeing these unex unexpected wars and conflicts just around the world. But meanwhile, we know there's no denying that America has always been the champion for democracy, again, the champion for maintaining this international order. But going back to the two presidents and looking at their records, 
how important was for them to understand and also continue to advocate for the international order or even better yet dr fever what how did they define actually the meaning of international order i mean again we couldn't really understand that the conflict the unexpected wars but having those international order mindset how did it really motivate the two presidents to move forward when we look at the foreign policy your thoughts well they uh, one thing is they would talk about them very differently so that concept international order is comes out of political science terms and president bush was very plain spoken and the, he had some professors like me working for him mm. uh, but he mostly liked to uh, uh beat us around the head and shoulders when we used jargon terms that didn't make sense in west texas you know mm. he, would, he would say come on what how how would you explain this to uh, the good old boy, the, my friend from West Texas, don't use academic jargon. But by international order, what we mean is the uh, arrangement that helps regulate conflict between states. Mm. It's, a, it's backed up by the rule of law and the idea that we can trust that if we make a contract, a treaty with another country, they're going to honor that. If we trade with the country... They'll do what they're obliged to do if we do what we're obliged to do. And then when we have disputes, we don't have to immediately reach for the gun, that there are international institutions that help uh, resolve these disputes or try to resolve these disputes at lower levels, whether they're in trade or copyright protection uh, or even in diplomatic terms. And that all of those institutions are themselves backed up by the commitment of the, the great powers, but the most important power being the United States, commitment to work within that arrangement. Mm. And this was what was designed by the leaders of the United States, the United Kingdom, and others in the wake of World War II to prevent that war from ever happening again. A global conflagration that involved the mass armies of all of the great powers. And they recognized that that would be catastrophic if that ever happened again, especially in the nuclear age. Mm. And so these, these mechanisms were developed and institutions were developed and have continued to this day. Now, of course, the Cold War period saw an interruption or a, um, a, a complication, namely rivalry between the U.S. and the Soviets that made the functioning of that all the more difficult after the Soviet Union disappeared, there was an opportunity for a different and more expansive spread of the best forms of this. Mm -hmm. And both the United States, uh, sorry, both President Bush and President Obama said there's lots wrong with this system. It could be fixed in a lot of ways, but it sure is better than the alternative. And I think that's one of the differences you see between their attitudes and some of the attitudes that are gaining popularity even in the United States. Uh, but certainly prominent in the in foreign capitals like Beijing and and uh, Moscow, um, Pyongyang, Tehran. Mm. These are places where they say they can imagine an international ordering system that's better for them, maybe worse for the rest of the world, but better for them. Uh, and they're actively trying to create it. Both President Bush and President Obama said, as bad as as many flaws as you can identify in the American-led order. It's still better than the alternatives. 
Dr. Fever, I got one more question before we move on to talk about our current political system in the U.S. Let's talk about, and again, I'm very glad you mentioned, for example, the nation of North Korea and also the nation of Iran. I mean, again, given the fact that today we're still looking at this political and also this what we call the nuclear weapon threat from both countries. I mean, of course, North Korea, this ongoing missile testing and this Iran, this political threat, it's rather sensitive and also critical to the international community. Now, let's talk about this political interest in those two countries. I mean, again, I, yeah. I'm, we're going to bring China into our conversation uh, very soon. But given the fact today, those countries, they still don't respect the sovereignty of the United States. And they still don't understand the significance and importance of the human rights equality. Of course, we're looking at the social inequality in those two countries as well. Now, so the question I want to ask you, Professor, again, going back to the book, is... As the two presidents, I mean, again, as the leaders, the goal was to ampl amplify American influence. The administration strengthened ties with the friends and with the allies and establish the relationship. How important or how critical back in the days for the two administrations to understand we can't really make them too angry. But meanwhile, we also need to be careful about what they did and how they accomplish their own agenda without causing too much fire. What do you say to that? Well, I think both of the chapters in the book that cover Iran and that cover North Korea are particularly interesting. So just to remind your listeners about how the book worked, there was the original memo that was classified and written in 2008 and given to um, the, the Obama team. Steve Hadley got those declassified mm. and then commissioned the group that had written the original memo and said, okay, now it's 15 years later or so, write an update memo. How does that memo, which is a snapshot in time, 2008, how does that look in 2023 mm. uh, through the benefit of hindsight? Mm. And what, you know, what are the lessons, the good, the bad, and the ugly about, about what the president what President Bush was able to accomplish and how that fared in subsequent administrations. If you take North Korea, the memo that was the postscript memo that was written 15 years later basically says, look, we tried on North Korea and we didn't succeed. Uh, Obama tried it his way and didn't succeed either. Mm. Uh, Trump tried a third way and that didn't succeed. So three successive administrations have tried to handled North Korea, they used very different techniques. Uh, all of them failed. And so there's a bipartisan record of no success in terms of in achieving what is the American goal, and which we share with the South Korean ally, namely a North Korea that has abandoned its nuclear arsenal and is functioning like a um, law-abiding member of the international system. North Korean regime is refusing to give up their nuclear weapons, and they regularly flout international law. And all the administrations have been unable to change that fact. Mm. Iran is a slightly different case. Uh, the administration was handing off to Iran, uh, sorry, handing off to Obama, an Iran policy that was uh, had some life left in it, but 
was depending on our allies putting pressure on Iran to change the Iranian calculations. We had to be close to our allies, and Iran wanted instead to be dealing just with the United States, separate us from the allies. The United And the Bush administration thought that was not the way to go. Obama team came in and had a very different view and said they are willing to meet face-to-face with the Iranians initially without the allies involved. Later, the allies did get involved. Uh, and out of the very different approach that the Obama administration developed came the agreement known as the JCPOA. Mm. And in the, the postscript chapter, the uh, Bush team evaluates the JCPOA and, you know, talks about what it got, what the positive sides of it and the negative sides of it. And of course, when President Trump came in, he jettisoned the JCPOA. And if you're taking a snapshot in 19, sorry, in 2023, which is when the book was published, you would say the Iran is an even bigger problem, and the, particularly the nuclear file with Iran is a much bigger problem in 2023 than it had been in 2008, when we thought it was a very, very big problem. And so that's another case of a foreign policy problem that's just gotten worse uh, in, in the interval. So obviously, people can disagree. Who do you put, assess the blame to? Do you blame Trump for getting rid of the JCPOA? Do you blame Obama for negotiating a deal that had all these limitations? Do you blame Bush for not um, getting more uh, when he was in office? Or do you blame the Bush administration for the Iraq war, which had the unintended consequence of empowering Iran? All of these are things that historians will debate. What's great about the book is the book gives the raw material for the reader to make their own judgments on Mm. this. And I think both of those chapters would be interest to your audience. Indeed, Professor, we're very much looking forward to um, expanding our knowledge by reading this book. Now, let's talk about your recent article. Again, you came out, the article is called The Real Challenge of Trump 2.0. I mean, again, going back to what we said intro, today, when we look at the political system in the U.S. is standing at the crossroads. Now, I promise you, and now let me fulfill the promise, let's talk about China, and then we'll talk about Trump. Professor, going back to the article, this is something you wrote, and I want to get your uh, reaction on this. China might exploit the fact that Trump does not care about defending Taiwan and pursue quick actions to recapture the rebellious province. Chinese leader Xi Jinping might just sit back and let Trump torch U.S. allies in Asia and China's benefit later. Now, Professor, again, we know that China today is one of the critical players for the international stage. And there is no denying that President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping met numerous times and trying to ease the tension. And some even scholars believe and China is trying to moderate its paces with the U.S., etc. But let's talk about it. If Trump were to become the next president for the country, what does that mean when you say that Chinese President Xi Jinping just sit back and let Trump torch U.S. allies in Asia to China's benefit later? What does that mean and what kind of message are you trying to say in this article? Go ahead. So I'm, it's important to distinguish between the views of President Trump himself mm. and the views of the advisors that he has collected around him 
and the views of the advisors that he had collected around him in Trump 1.0. So this is an important distinction that's often lost. Trump 1.0 had the same man, President Trump, at the center. And so far as we can tell, his foreign policy views have not really changed. Mm. Today, they sound a lot like they did in 2015. Mm. So he personally hasn't changed. But around him in the first administration were a lot of regular Republicans, people who would have gotten a job if in any Republican administration um, and uh, and or uh, people who ha- whose views are pretty mainstream in terms of conservative hawkish. I'm thinking now of someone like Secretary Mattis, mm. uh, this de- uh, Department of Defense uh, leader. H.R. McMaster was the National Security Advisor. John Kelly, who was Homeland Security Advisor and then moved over to be White House Chief of Staff. Uh, even Mike Pompeo, um, who was uh, Secretary of State and Secretary Esper, who took over um, after Secretary Mattis left. These are all, you know, conservative traditional hawks of some flavor or another. Some of them, uh, you know, quite uh, Republican uh, hawks. They are different from the MAGA rhinos, what I call MAGA rhinos, Republican in name only, because what makes them Republican is they're loyal to Trump, not Mm. necessarily to traditional Mm. uh, views. But someone like uh, Pompeo would have shown up in a Reagan administration or a Bush administration, uh, Bush the son. So any of the last could have been in a Romney administration if he had won, McCain administration, etc. Traditional. And then there's the MAGA rhinos. The, the, these are the Republicans because they're loyal to the person of Trump and to a more neo-isolationist view. In the first administration, there was a fair number of the traditional Republicans. And they were able to affect policy in two ways. It's not widely understood, but this is what the piece documents. Mm. First on the vast number of issues that the president didn't care about that were operating below their his radar, they just pursued normal Republican policies. Read Secretary Mattis's national defense strategy that was released in 2018. It's all about the importance of allies, integrating more closely with allies. It's allies, allies, allies. Mm. That's, that, but I am quite confident that President Trump was not much involved in the drafting of the national defense strategy that happened below his um, radar. Then when the issue did get raised to the Trump level and the allies in East Asia did, Trump wanted to go in a very different direction. Not He didn't want to support South Korea. He wanted to pull our troops out of it. He wanted to um, make Japan pay four times the amount that they had been paying in terms of um, subsidies for uh, U.S. deployments. It was a much more transactional and hostile to allies. What these traditional Republicans could do is they had access to the Oval Office. So the president would say, this is what I want to do. And they'd say, well, sir, let me explain the second and third order implications. If we go that route, here are some bad things. And they would persuade him to change his mind. That's 1.0. In 2.0, you're going to have the same president who has the same instincts but the people around him are not going to be those traditional Republicans. They're going to be Magarino mm. advisors who will either not make the contrary case to the president because they agree, or in 
policy areas that the president's not paying attention to, they will merrily pursue the neo-isolationist agenda. And so take um, uh, the one place where this may matter the most is Taiwan policy, because the people around President Trump are are very hawkish when they talk about China and even hawkish about talking about Taiwan. But when you listen to President Trump himself and to the people who are trying to be the most Trumpy in their imitation, so Vivek Ramaswamy, who is a rival, but who is, you know, was trying to sound like Trump, a younger version of Trump. They talk about Taiwan in a very different way from the traditional Republican hawks. And so the piece is speculating that that President Trump's personal commitment on Taiwan is very different from what you might think if you just read Republican hawkish views about Taiwan. And when he becomes, if he becomes president, and when the matter comes up to him, what will be the advisors that will have his ear and what will the debate sound like and where do you think it will end up? And that's the, the piece of speculating on that. It's mm. so a long answer to an important question, but I hope you get the sense of it. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Fever, I know you're very busy. Two more questions before letting you go. Now, let's talk about, again, um, the foreign policy under President Trump. Again, going back to the article. Now, let's talk about the war in Ukraine. Of course, the... I mean, throughout the media, that even something that you wrote, that Trump has already moved about ending the war in Ukraine in 24 hours. And again, his first term attempt to hold Ukraine's strategy hostage to pursue a vendetta against the Biden may indicate a readiness to impose an unfavorable peace deal on Kyiv. Now, at this moment, the entire international community are still very divided regarding offering supply, you know, military and also financial resources to Ukraine. For the Trump 2.0, how do you think that Trump is going to manage that? I mean, is it still possible, even believable, that he's going to end the war within 24 hours and, you know, bring Putin, bring Zelensky together in the room to talk about this negotiation. But meanwhile, China still is the bench player. I mean, again, China is very clear regarding this peace deal, regarding this dialogue. So how do you think he's going to manage that with China as the important player and also look at the war in Ukraine? What do you think of that, Professor? Well, there's really only one way you could bring the war to a speedy end, and that is if you uh, effectively join sides with Putin to um, destroy the Ukrainian government. Mm. That would end at least the major combat operations quickly, uh, because it would result in the defeat of Ukraine. There would still be an insurgency that would go on for years and years, and, and Putin would uh, beholding territory that was filled with people who hated Russians. And so it would not be a, um, a wonderful peace, but it would it would end the war, uh, but at, at a horrible, horrible price, and at a price that would, would be devastating to uh, the international order that has been so good for American interests. That's what people are afraid Trump is referring to when he says, I can end it in 24 hours. I'll just abandon Ukraine. That will cause Ukraine to collapse. Putin wins, and we can declare it over. But if you say, no, we're going to bring a peace deal together, or somehow going to bring these two sides together, mm. and they're going to negotiate a, a joint 
ceasefire and a joint peace agreement, there's no way that can happen in 24 hours. It's going to be there's no appetite on either side to make the concessions that would be needed to bring about a deal that both would sign. Uh, and so it's just a pipe dream to say that you would end it in 24 hours unless what you're talking about is abandoning Ukraine. And here I want to disagree with you. I think there's a strong consensus, at least in the Western international community, that we need to support Ukraine. Mm. And then our European allies are doing a lot to support Ukraine, as mm. is the United States. Where the disagreement is within the Republican Party, where the MAGA rhino wing is willing to abandon Ukraine and follow sort of the neo-isolationist siren song of if we stay home, problems abroad won't come uh, back to bite us. That's the same message that we tried to convince ourselves of in the 1930s. And of course, it was disastrously wrong. They're trying to trying that again inside the Republican Party. But the American people on average uh, in, in the aggregate support Ukraine and the Western allies strongly support uh, the Ukraine. Mm. Dr. Fever, I want to wrap up our conversation by asking you the last question regarding this immigration debate. And of course, today we know this is one of the hot topics in the U.S. And of course, everyone is paying attention, is watching that. And of course, that again, going back to uh, the article for the Trump administration 1.0, that Trump vowed to build the wall, you know, going to stop those illegal immigrants. Of course, even though he made a, a firm policy that regarding those uh, what we call the special talents and, you know, came to the U.S. and, you know, this uh, uh, really stole the interest of the U.S. is, you know, not really uh, respect the sovereignty, respect the law and et cetera. I want to hear your final thoughts regarding the immigration bill or immigration policy debate. For Trump 2.0, are we going to see any possible changes or is it still going to make America great again? You know, build the wall, close the border, and we need to secure American interests and let them come home, not going overseas, etc. Your final thoughts. Well, this is a tough issue uh, for the United States, but it's important to recognize that one of the bedrock sources of American strength is that we are an immigrant nation. Mm. Lee Kuan Yew put it this way, that in uh, he was asked to assess the long-term competition between China and the United States, and he said, well, that's hard. China can draw on the human capital of a billion people, and that's hard to compete with. But he said, but the United States can draw on the human capital of six billion people mm. because anybody anywhere can become an American uh, citizen, if they, you know, follow the law and embrace, you know, the the principles of American support, the Constitution, it's not a soil argument, it's not a blood argument, it's not a racial argument, anyone can be an American. And that's a great strength. Mm -hmm. And that's, I'd say, the advantage the U.S. has had, oh, one of the key advantages the U.S. has had over rivals for 200 plus years. However, I'm referring to legal immigration. Mm. And the challenge today is that many, many, many more people want to come to America than our legal immigration system can process. And so our legal immigration system is swamped, and we have now large numbers of people crossing the borders illegally. And that is a, a challenge for any country, even a country that is committed to 
its immigrant um, roots as the United States is. Uh, and so the problem is that the fix for this uh, requires both parties to do things that are very, very hard for one or the other element of their base. Mm. Uh, and what President Trump was able to do very effectively in the first campaign, 2015, 2016, is weaponize resentment over this issue. Uh, in, ter in terms of his actual policies, he, the, they weren't very successful mm. at achieving it. None of his boasts came true. Most famously, of course, he claimed he would A, build a wall that two a B that Mexico would pay for. He didn't build the wall. Mexico didn't pay for the wall. Mm. Uh, so, um, but the issue remains politically potent. And it's the issue that probably Trump has the biggest advantage on with respect to President Biden. Mm. And that's why the Trump directed the, his Republican allies on the Hill not to make a deal with Biden. Biden surprised the Republicans by saying, okay, I'm willing to make a deal. I'm willing to do things that are unpopular in my party to make a deal so that we can move forward on this issue. And then the Republicans realize, oh, we do not want to do that because that would give, that would remove a club that we could use to beat you over the head mm. with. And so they said, we'd rather keep the problem going and beat you over the head with it than take the compromise deal, which was the most hawkish immigration deal a Democrat had ever agreed to. Mm. Uh, and, the, and the Republicans just rejected it. That's a measure of its partisan potency, that they were willing to cut that uh, partisan calculation that way. And we'll see if, if that proves to be, uh, you know, the politically shrewd, we'll know in, on election day. Of course, Professor, we're still a few months, again, seeing the results of the election. But meanwhile, we know that America it has always done the right thing. And of course, I mean, that's why we celebrate the democracy. We celebrate that America is the champion for democracy. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to speak to Dr. Peter Fever. Again, Dr. Fever is the professor of political science and the public policy at Duke University. I strongly encourage everyone go online, connect with Dr. Fever. Again, check out this amazing book. It's called Handoff, the Foreign Policy, George W. Bush Passed to Barack Obama, and his amazing article called The Real Challenge of Trump 2.0. Well, Dr. Fever, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure and love to have you back on the show as we continue to pay attention to the progress the U.S. States is making and also the matters around the world. So thank you so much for doing this.